Welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Brooke Patterson and I'm a physiotherapist and postdoctoral research fellow at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Jackie Whitaker. Jackie is an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy and a research scientist at Arthritis Research Canada, and she's based in Vancouver. Jackie is a very experienced physical therapist, educator, and mentor to many graduate research students. Today, we're going to discuss the OptiKnee Consensus, which is an international exercise aimed at synthesizing the evidence and developing evidence-based recommendations for rehab um, to optimize musculoskeletal health and preventing post-traumatic osteoarthritis following knee trauma. So the OptiKnee Consensus has resulted in seven systematic reviews and finally an overarching open access consensus document, which will be published in the BJSM in December. Welcome to the podcast, Jackie. Thanks, Brooke. It's uh, fun to be here. So this is obviously a massive undertaking. Um, what on earth inspired you to take on this mammoth task of summarising all the ACL literature out there? And I guess talk us through a little bit about what the OptiNe consensus involved. Yeah, you know, I think we've known for a really long time that people that hurt their knees are at increased risk for osteoarthritis, in particular people that tear their ACL. Um, but we don't really know what to do about it. Nobody's really doing a lot about it. We always say, oh, it increases your risk, but then people just kind of stop there. And so I think a group of us felt that it was about time that we actually did something about that and try to figure out what it is that we should be doing. And so the consensus exercise was really figuring out first, what do we already know about this? And so we did these systematic reviews to try to synthesize all the evidence we could sort of in related areas to, to say, you know, who's at greatest risk? What should we be doing? What's the best sort of evidence-based approach to these types of injuries? What should we be monitoring and how should we be monitoring it? And I think, you know, we did that ultimately to figure out what's out there. And then the second part, which is the consensus piece, was to figure out what we don't know. And knowing that it's going to take us time to fill those knowledge gaps, obviously report that so people can start working on it. But then also using the brain trust of clinician scientists, clinicians and patient partners to start to fill in some of those gaps. Um, based on what we feel would be the most appropriate or, or kind of the most evidence-informed way of doing that. And really the hope of all of it was just to raise awareness so that osteoarthritis is on the minds of patients and clinicians at the time of injury rehab, um, or put another way, have a, a broader focus beyond the short game and sort of be thinking about the long game in the future. And we also wanted to obviously create some discussion to stimulate some new research and really try to push the field forward. So when a clinician is reading one of these consensus documents, what does that process look like? Yeah, you know, it's a really great point. So consensus, a consensus exercise or a consensus document, we do consensuses when there is things we don't know and we want to fill gaps in knowledge. So we don't have the research evidence. And so we go through a process to try to fill those gaps. So, you know, we, we kind of, I guess we followed seven steps in our process. So the consensus document really just reports the process we took and um, then the outcomes of that process, which for OptiNe were a few definitions, some clinical recommendations and some research recommendations. And the steps that we took, well, I mean, first things first is we had to identify a small steering group of people that were interested in this problem. 
Um, and that steering group included myself, Adam Colvener and Kay Crosley from Latrobe, who you're very familiar with, and then Ava Roos and Karsten Jull from the University of Southern Denmark. And we particularly had Karsten on board because he is a master of knowledge synthesis. And we really needed somebody with a high level of expertise related to that so that we could produce some really high quality systematic reviews. So first of all, we identified the steering group. Then we developed, I think it was about five guiding questions. So things that we really wanted answers to. So we wanted to know what the burden of traumatic knee injuries were, particularly ACL injuries. We wanted to know what the risk factors were for osteoarthritis after an injury. We wanted to know what the best rehab approaches and interventions were for um, knee injuries to not lead to PTOA or post-traumatic osteoarthritis. And then we kind of wanted to know, well, what should we be monitoring as far as outcomes go and, and how should we be interpreting that? So we got those questions and then we pulled together. We, we looked out there and we said, OK, who's got expertise sort of that, that could help us answer these five guiding questions? And then we asked those people to, to bring on a team of people to basically do these evidence syntheses, these systematic reviews for us. And that ended up with us having a group around 40 people. But we also asked each one of the review leads to make sure that they had a patient and a clinician partner because we really felt that that was important. Um, and then we did the reviews to figure out, okay, so what do we know? What, what already has been done that we could synthesize? And then based on those reviews, come up with recommendations either related to the evidence or recommendations that filled in gaps that we found. And then we basically, as a group, we met and we refined those recommendations, and then ultimately we voted on them. So the outputs for clinicians that are reading the consensus paper are going to be some definitions that we decided that we needed so that we could all make sure we were speaking the same language. And I think there's about seven of those. And then kind of at a high level, eight clinical recommendations related to who should we be focusing on and what should we be doing and how should we be doing it and what should we be monitoring and how so that we can try to prevent post-traumatic osteoarthritis after a knee injury. And then we also had, I think, six research recommendations that are really focused on helping to prioritize what we need to do best, what the best practice for research would be, and then how can we harmonize outcomes so that we could maybe, some, you know, pull data together from across different research groups to answer some questions. Thanks, Jackie. Very comprehensive overview. I'm looking forward to um, delving into some of the recommendations in a second. Yeah. So lots of experts and um, how was it kind of combining everyone's opinions and, and working through all that? Because um, as we all know, some of the evidence is, you know, it's, there's not as much out there in this post-traumatic OA space. So how did you go navigating all the different opinions and the, the greyness, I guess, of the evidence? I mean, I think that's the art of consensus in the sense that um, you know, it's, it's really important. A, a couple of things. So number one, this all happened during COVID. So typically what happens with consensus meetings is that you'll do the evidence synthesis and you will come up with the recommendations and you might refine them a little bit, but then you tend to get together as a large group for two days or three days and you just kind of get in a room and you just hammer it out, right? You just figure it out. You find wording. You find things that a lot of people can agree on. And then, you know, the beauty of consensus, consensus doesn't mean that we all agree. Consensus just means that we came to a consensus on a statement and then we voted on it. And then we report 
you know, how did people think? Like, what did they vote? Did some people really agree with the statement or not so much agree with the statement? And the really cool thing about consensus is not only do we report, you know, what the recommendation was, what what the agreement was for the recommendation, but we also actually in the document and it's in the supplementary files, we actually report where there was dissenting viewpoints or where people weren't agreeing because those are actually really awesome little things to think about as you start to think about, well, what would the next stage of the recommendations be or the next research project that we need to do to sort of figure out if this dissenting viewpoint had more legs than actually the recommendation that we came up with. So I think the key thing to remember is that consensus doesn't mean agreement. It really just means that we we ended up with a recommendation that everyone could live with, and then we voted on it. And some people liked them and, and some people didn't. But because of COVID, we couldn't meet. We tried um, several times um, and we just couldn't meet because conferences kept getting canceled. So the cool thing was that we ended up doing our consensus meetings as sort of two hour meetings. I think we did six or seven of them over a four month period. And because of that, we were able to kind of go away, reflect, pause, reword, go back to everybody, get their thoughts. And in the end, I think because we had the time between the meetings and we weren't all stressed out and fatigued being together in a room for two for, for two full days, we were able to incorporate a lot of people's different viewpoints. Yeah, I think it's a really important point for clinicians to be aware of when we're, they're reading these documents to understand that background process. Let's dive into some of those key clinical recommendations for the listeners. What are some of the yeah, the key takeaways yeah, so I'll kind of break it down. I think one of the first of them is like, who should we target? Who's at increased risk of osteoarthritis after a knee injury? And interestingly, I think one of the main things to take away is that it's not just people that tear their ACL or have an ACL tear and a meniscal tear. Actually, all people that have single or multi-structure knee injuries have an elevated risk for post-traumatic knee osteoarthritis. And for instance, people that have a collateral ligament injury still have about a five times elevated risk of, of knee osteoarthritis. So it's not just about ACLs and meniscus. With that being said, there is definitely a high risk group. And that includes people that have interarticular damage, including the ACL tear, meniscal tear, or an interarticular fracture. And so the way that we've kind of worded the first recommendation is that who we should target, well, basically people that have knee injuries should be aware that they have an elevated risk for osteoarthritis, but that we should really prioritize efforts to manage knee health long-term in those that have that higher risk. So who've had an intraarticular knee injury or who have symptoms and or functional restrictions that kind of last longer than you would expect them to or have a subsequent injury because those people are most likely to go on to develop osteoarthritis. So that was kind of the first recommendation, which is really who should we be targeting? And, and as I said, it's not just about ACLs, it's about a broad set of injuries, but there are certainly a group that are at higher risk. Um, and then the next one, the next clinical recommendation was really, well, what should we be doing to reduce the risk of osteoarthritis after knee injury? And what we kind of settled on is that we need to be working with the patient to figure out what information they need. So obviously there's a need for education, but not everybody needs the same education. So you've got to figure out what people know about their knee health and osteoarthritis risk and then sort of tailor the education. Um, and then ultimately you need to guide them so that they can self-manage so they can avoid 
osteoarthritis. And, and probably the main things that they need to self-manage are muscle weakness, particularly in their thigh muscles, their quads and their hamstrings. They have to manage um, their physical activity so they don't become inactive in time. And they need to manage any kind of weight gain, any adiposity gain. So basically, we say self-manage because these people are going to come in, they're going to be treated for their knee injury, and then they're going to be left to their own devices. And so it's really about setting them up during that initial stage so that once they're discharged from their knee injury, they, they have the knowledge and they have the skills to make sure they keep their adiposity down, they stay physically active, and they keep their muscles strong. Um, because that risk for post-traumatic knee osteoarthritis isn't going to just go away when they're discharged or it's not going to go away over time. So it's really about setting them up for the long game. The third recommendation was really related to evidence-based care for ACL tears. And obviously the majority of the research that's been done in this field has focused on ACL tears, in particular on people who've torn their ACL and have been managed with an anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction. And, um, you know, in looking at all the evidence and synthesizing it, and I think you were on one of the systematic reviews that that informed this, this space, and it was actually a systematic review of systematic reviews um, that had looked at just randomized control trials, so really high-level evidence. And what we concluded there was that in most cases, the treatment of ACL tears should start with education and exercise, exercise-based rehab, and not necessarily surgery. So in other words, th that focus away from early ACLR reconstruction. And it's interesting because I think, I think we're seeing that theme come out with other, um, other research that's been coming out of the, over the last several months. So maybe we'll loop back to it a little bit later. We'll see. Um, but definitely, you know, for most cases, you tear your ACL, you need some education, you need to get going on exercise. And then there can be a decision made over time as to whether or not it's necessarily or whether or not you need an ACL reconstruction. Um, rehab should initially be supervised and it should progress to maybe being semi-supervised and then unsupervised. So again, this sort of theme of being able to build self-management and it should include weight-bearing exercises, mobility exercises, and open and closed chain kinetic exercises, neuromuscular control, plyometric exercises, mostly targeting hamstrings and quads. But the key is with a sufficient dose to stimulate a physiological adaptation. Um, so really, most things are on the table there, um, but really just focusing on those muscles, whether it be open or closed kinetic chain. Um, obviously, prioritize and start discussing early any return to uh, sport, whether that and and or any activity. So whether it be sport or physical activity or maybe a, a more physical occupation um, and being aware of sort of these return to sport or return to work sort of test batteries. Um, yeah, and I think probably the other thing that comes out in the in the clinical recommendations is really this piece around having a dialogue with patients, understanding their goals, understanding what their criteria are for deciding whether they need surgery or when they want to return to sport, um, and really in, in promoting their engagement in the rehab process, whether that be through goal setting, um, et cetera. Because again, the key is you want to set them up to have this ability to self-manage over a long period of time. And we also know that when it comes to exercise, you know, an exercise is no good if no one does it. So it's really about trying to promote, um, you know, adherence to exercise to the level that you get this physiological adaptation. 
And we know that goal setting um, is something that can certainly help us in achieving that. So you'll, the, the, the clinicians will see that there's a lot of, or the readers will see that there's a lot of sort of nuances to this approach of, of engaging participants or patients in their own care. As far as outcomes to monitor, um, there's a lot of options. We did, there's three really cool SRs that were done, systematic reviews that were done to inform this. But um, basically what it kind of comes down to is you should probably be using at least one multi-domain patient reported outcome measure. So something like the COOS or the International Knee Documentation Committee form. Um, and then at least one knee extensor and knee flexor strength test. And if hopping is an appropriate functional test, then one hop test. Um, as a bare minimum. Um, but we talk a little bit about, you know, what other um, sort of domains of patient reported outcomes might be interesting for people if they were doing research or if they were specifically interested in self-efficacy or someone's confidence or concern about movement or something like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, basically, those are kind of the key, I guess, sort of overarching clinical clinical takeaways. Maybe to start off with, if we kind of circle back and first thing was about who, um, which you mentioned, you know, the groups that were at risk, I guess for um, the clinicians out there that might be having that conversation, like what are some of the stats out there about how many might go on to develop post-traumatic OA if they're wanting to use some basic, I guess, numbers in, in their conversation? And I guess, when would you start to have that conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. So we, we, we know really clearly um, that probably around 50% of people that tear their ACL will go on to develop post-traumatic osteoarthritis. Um, but as I said, we also know that there's a five-fold increased risk for people that have a collateral ligament tear. We don't necessarily know what the numbers are for maybe interarticular fractures, um, et cetera. But I would probably go with somewhere around 50% of people that have a, a significant traumatic knee injury, give or take, are going to go on to develop post-traumatic osteoarthritis. So the good news is that there's a 50-50 chance that you're going to, and there's a 50-50 chance you're not going to. And the reason that that's important is osteoarthritis is probably one of the main reasons that we as human beings become inactive as we age. It starts to, in, you know, gives us pain. It gives us swelling. It starts to interfere with how our joints work. We start cutting back on some of the things that we like to do. And before we know it, we become less active. We gain some weight. And then that can ultimately lead to a whole bunch of other health conditions, which we're not going to talk about. But I think the key is is letting people know, ah, probably not the first time you see them, but over the, the course of the first, you know, I don't know, three or four weeks, understand that the rehab that we're doing now is important for getting your knee back to where it needs to be and you doing the things that you want to do, but also realizing that we're setting the stage for this long-term game where you don't develop osteoarthritis, or if you do develop it, you develop it in a less severe form that doesn't interfere with your ability to be active and do all the things that you love to do. So that's kind of how I approach it with patients. I say, look, there's a 50-50 chance here, and we want to try to do everything we can to make sure that you fall into this pot. Um, but if not, if you end up falling into the pot that develops osteoarthritis, we really want you to make, make sure that that it's a less severe form that you've done everything that you can to, to be successful. And really that comes down to not gaining weight, not becoming physically inactive and not losing muscle strength. Um, yeah. Um, what I really love about, yeah, some of the key messages was that focus on physical activity, strength and and, and weight and often in the ACL research is very much focused on return to sport and you know that's the ultimate goal and that's where where we end 
yeah, is there merit, I guess, in saying, you know, I actually still want to see you, even though you've, you know, you've achieved what we want to achieve. Like, yeah, what would your advice be to kind of trying to, I guess, even have some touch points beyond that 12 month, two year period so they don't get to three or four years, all of a sudden their knee's painful and they go, oh, you know, this is bad and, and stop everything. Yeah. So, you know, what I kind of tell my patients is that to me, the red flag is when you start to notice that you're becoming less active. So you notice that on a consistent basis, you're making a decision during the day to not do some physical activity, whether it be your sport or whether it be, I don't know, riding your Peloton bike or whether it be whatever it is you do, walk the dog, um, that you choose not to do it or to modify it because of your knee. And when you find that you're consistently doing that, it might be a great time to come in and check with me because that could be the tipping point. And if you leave that modification of exercise too long, it might be that you wake up a year or two later and you've got a dramatically different lifestyle. You've become way less active. Maybe you've gained some weight. And every time you go to start trying to be more active, your knee sort of flares up. You get frustrated. You think, oh, I'm going to rest it. And if I rest it long enough, it'll be better and I'll be able to start being active. But then every time you try again, you kind of fail. So to me, I always say to them, look, don't wait um, worst case scenario, you come in, we just tweak some things. It's fine. You go on on your way, but I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to think that you're wasting my time. And it, it really is that first sign of you modifying your activity behaviors that to me is the turning point. Don't wait till your knee is painful and swollen. Um, I mean, obviously, if you get to that point, come on in, but I would really encourage people to come in prior to that because, um, yeah, you know, there is an expectation that you may, you know, there's a good chunk of people after they have this injury, have this rehab and go away. There's a good chunk of them that start to become less physically active, that start to gain weight. And it's a heck of a lot easier to prevent weight gain and to prevent a loss of physical activity than to try to change that after it's happened. Could not agree more. Just to finish off, there's a lot of research out there. Is there anything in the whole process that surprised you in the findings or, um, yeah, any kind of specific gaps for future research? Yeah, I mean, I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit. I think one of it was that the risk of osteoarthritis isn't unique to ACL tears and meniscal tears, but it was also elevated with collateral ligament injuries and fractures and patellar dislocations and those sorts of things. Um Again, I think this piece that, you know, we've got a lot of research that's been done on ACL tears, particularly those managed with early anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction, but we don't know a lot about tears that aren't managed with ACLR or other knee injuries. And I think that's an area where we can do more work going forward. Um, we also didn't find a lot of evidence to suggest that early ACLR reduces the risk for osteoarthritis. Um, we didn't find any evidence to suggest that one graft type reduces the risk for osteoarthritis. Um, so that was that was a little maybe interesting. I don't know. Some of the biggest challenges that we found was trying to combine data. So first of all, when we came to the systematic reviews and the papers that were included with them, quite often the papers that were included in the reviews defined osteoarthritis differently. So it wasn't easy to combine data. And then the other piece was that if they measured, I don't know, let's say quadricep strength or a hot test, they used a different, they did, they did it differently. And so it wasn't that easy to be able to combine the data and, and people will see that as they read through the SRs. 
Um, though we did try to find, you know, kind of consistent messages across those studies that were included. I agree. Like the measurement properties papers are fantastic, even though there were those challenges of combining the data. I would encourage clinicians to go and have a look at those because you can look at the different ways that, that hop tests were conducted and also some of the normal values for people after ACL reconstruction and also what, um, you know, you might expect the standard error to be and what, you know, change is real. Um, so some really nice kind of clinical tools that you can go to those papers as a one-stop shop of, you know, what's, what's the strength, what should we be expecting our patients to hop um, and function at. All right, what is next for OptiMe? I know you probably need a little bit of a break, but what's the grand plans? Well, I mean, obviously, we need to get the information out there. So, you know, we've got several audiences. Obviously, we have patients as audiences, we have uh, clinicians as an audience, and we have researchers. Um, but we also want to get the message out to funding agencies and sport organizations or people that are invested, hopefully, in the long-term health of young people that hurt their knee. Because let's face it, the majority of these knee injuries occur between sort of the ages of 15 and 25. So we are talking about young people that get old knees very early on in life, and, and that has long-term implications for them. Um, we've got the papers. Um, we've got some infographics coming out. We're doing this today. We've got some blogs coming out with BJSM. Um, we've got some talks planned to various um, patient groups. Um, we also will have a session at the Canadian Arthritis Research Conference, and there will probably be other opportunities for others around the world as, as well. Um, we'll be applying for some funding. We want to bring together a broader group of patients and almost have them look at our recommendations and maybe rewrite them from the perspective of rewriting them in a way that they can use those words when they're talking to healthcare professionals. So what do you say to a physiotherapist or a physician or a surgeon when you're having those conversations? Thinking also about maybe a, a research priority setting exercise, because obviously we found a lot of knowledge gaps and now it's really figuring out what's the most strategic way to go forward in the research field, because there's a lot that needs to be done and we're going to be able to move the field a lot, along a lot faster if we sort of have a coordinated effort. And there's certain groups around the world that are better, you know, uh, you, equipped to answer certain questions and then other groups that are better equipped to answer other questions. And, and I think it's working as a community to try to figure out how to move things forward. Thanks, Jackie. And I'm sure you'd be happy for anyone to reach out who might have some ideas about uh, disseminating information or even some of the priorities that they see in their day-to-day -day practice. Yeah, you know, and I would say this is always the thing with consensus exercises that's challenging is at the end of the day, you have 40 people in a room and how those 40 people get there, there's a lot of different ways. And if you read the consensus paper, you'll, you'll, you'll see the process that we took to get to those 40 people. And we certainly didn't hand pick them, but there's people that weren't in the room that I'm sure have very important and valid um, knowledge that could contribute to moving the field forward. And I think at the end of the day, the group is just really wanting to move the field forward. Um, and it's not about ownership or, you know, excluding people. So yeah, I would definitely encourage people to reach out and, and some have already reached out, which has been amazing. And I suspect that as we go forward with the next steps of Optini, there will even be a larger group of people that will be engaged in this. Fantastic. And to finish off, if you could leave the clinicians with three key takeaways, so if they've got someone with a traumatic knee injury, what are the three key things you want them to, to take away? I think probably number one is don't forget the long game. Um, people need to know how to manage their knee health after they hurt their knee and after their time with you for that rehab for their knee injury. So teach them how to be self-sufficient um, and teach them when to come back 
when when they might need a little help beyond what they can do for themselves. So keep the eye on the long game. Um, I think that the other thing is not everyone that tears their ACL needs ACL surgery early, early on. I think the key is figure out what knowledge the person needs, what information do they need, provide it, and get them starting on exercise um, in a meaning a way that that's meaningful for them. Um, and I guess maybe the third takeaway is just recognizing that these consensus uh, recommendations are a starting point and they're meant to stimulate discourse. Um, if you've got time, download the supplementary file and look at the dissenting viewpoints and and just go, hey, yeah, you know, actually, that's a really good point. I never I never thought about that. Um, and yeah, just just know that there's a continued conversation and discussion that needs to happen here and that these are really meant to be a starting point that's they're going to evolve over time. Thank you so much, Jackie, for chatting today. We'll leave the links to the consensus statement and the reviews in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast and we hope you have a physically active day.